From WAMU 88.5, this is Metropocalypse. I'm Martin DeCaro. And I'm Martine Powers. Coming up, we're heading back to 1986. Warnings about Metro's future that were not heeded. We'll talk to historian Zachary Schrag and a former Metro general manager. But first, Safe Track Week 4. Riders are leaving Metro Rail. Where are they going? Let's find out. The DC Metro uh, historically has been a great strength of this region. Customers should expect extended delays and crowded conditions on trains and platforms. The system is resilient, so if Metro's down, people will know what their options are. So, Martine, we're not on a train or bus today. We're in a studio. How boring. Relaxing here in week three or entering week four of Safe Track. Yeah, I guess it's not as exciting as it usually is, right? With you and I out on the on the system. That's because things have been going pretty well, right? Well, knock on wood. I mean, so far, but we're only a few weeks in and we've got a long ways to go. So I wouldn't jinx it just yet. Well, on the first days of surges one and two, we woke up very early. We went to Boston, Franconia, Springfield, Eastern Market, key stations affected by the track work. And for the most part, we did not see packed platforms and trains. Metro told riders to stay away, and they listened. Listen to these numbers. This is rush hour ridership at key stations along the blue, orange, and silver lines. Addison Road saw a 75% decrease in morning rush hour. Benning Road down 79%. Capitol Heights down 77%. Chevrolet off 74%. Foggy Bottom, which is in the downtown core, saw a 30% drop. So you get the idea. Metro needed that kind of cooperation because there's simply not enough trains operating in the affected line segments to carry the normal volume. Metro hopes people will come back when the work is done. So will they? Let's try to answer that question with Melissa McMahon. She's a planner with Arlington County Commuter Services. She also crunches numbers for mobilitylab.org. Melissa, thanks for being here. Thousands of Arlingtonians are taking a break from Metro Rail. How many of them are going to stay away? From a behavior change perspective, most of these people are going to be shifting temporarily. People establish commutes that work for them. And unless your job is changing, your house is changing, maybe you have a baby or some big change in your life, you're not likely to be seeking a brand new commute in this in this instance. So you're waiting out safe track, you're taking the information that's most readily available, and you're putting it into a quick solution. So, so do you buy that forecast that people were talking about, um, you know, when Safe Track was first announced, that some folks might, you know, try out biking or might try out the bus system for the first time and then decide that, that it's something that they want to do long term? I think it's possible. It's just not going to be the majority of riders. Metro Rail carries a lot of people. So if Safe Track gives them the chance to try a commute that's actually better than the one they were doing before, they may very well stick with it. I think the, actually the better advantage or experiment we're seeing here is that when a region has a lot of options, it isn't so much that we need people to shift permanently to bus or permanently to bike in order to succeed. What we are showing and demonstrating is that the system is resilient. And from what I've been told, Metro's done a pretty good job at sharing data with Fairfax County, with Arlington County, with other jurisdictions, because, you know, These local DOTs, Departments of Transportation, want to put whatever resources they have where they need to be, right? I mean, you don't want to put a bike share station, which was what happened at East Falls Church, and it's not going to be used. So we already seen that, and now that bike share station might be shifted somewhere else. At Eastern Market, DDOT, the District Department of Transportation, had a bike corral going. It wasn't being used there either. Yeah, we had a bike corral going in Boston as well, and it wasn't necessary for the success of that station, so we were able to move those bikes to another location. The jurisdictions are sharing information with each other. 
WMATA is sharing information with the jurisdictions. VDOT is sharing information with the jurisdictions. There's a lot of communication going on. Is there data that the region is lacking? I mean, are there pieces of information or kind of spheres of information that, that you all wish that you had more of? Well, the information that we have most readily is real-time use of systems. That, I would still contend is the most important information because we can look at that over time. We can look at patterns and changes. We can compare on last year with all of these services. We just need more time to collect it. Transportation is experienced personally. You know, you make choices based on what it's like to be riding in a bus or taking the rail or or driving your car. You take choices on transportation based on what you need for your family, for your business. It isn't about the numbers. So we can we can say all we want that traffic isn't bad on I-66, but if your commute went from one hour to two hours, that's a, that's a personal experience that's going to affect your decision-making. You have so many people who decide to take their complaints or their concerns, their angry concerns about their commute mm-hmm. uh, to Twitter, to Facebook. Um, and mm-hmm. it's been interesting to see transportation agencies become more responsive to that. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like it must be a challenge because, I mean, I know that when I am you know looking to find how people are experiencing their commutes that you just you see the whiniest and most vocal set of people and it's hard to tell whether that's representative or not of of what the broad swath of people are, are actually experiencing. Social media may be a skewed source of perspective but I get the sense that Mobility Lab and the Commuter Service Bureau brands get a different cut of the public's input when they use social media. It's not the same as WMATA that's receiving complaints every day about about bad service. It's more exploratory. It's more um, when Bike Arlington receives input over social media, it's to tell them about how people are experiencing their new bike wayfinding signs. And that's really exciting because you get good feedback, but we can't necessarily turn the feedback on social media into evidence that the results are happening on the ground. Mm-hmm. We didn't get any uptake on the bike trains that we were offering from from on the Orange and Silver Line corridor in Surge 1. That was, it was a great idea. It got a lot of movement on social media and a lot of support. And the wayfinding signs themselves were really popular and continued to be used, but the bike trains weren't, weren't taken up. Social media response doesn't always translate directly to effectiveness and, and usefulness. Melissa McMahon, transportation planner with Arlington County and mobilitylab.org. Next week, we'll talk with WAMU reporter Jacob Fenston. He's been talking to riders about how they make their decisions about where to go when Metro is down. Jacob talked to members of our Metropocalypse Facebook group, where we've got a lively conversation going, news updates about Safe Track 2. And you can join, ask a question, or just share a story. Go to wamu.org metro for more information. When we continue a trip back to 1986 and the early 1990s, back then the system seemed to be in a state of good repair. So what happened? Hi, it's Diane. The next meeting of my book club is on Wednesday, May 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll host a discussion of Mad Honey by Jody Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan, followed by a conversation with the authors. Find out more and register at dianereem.org slash book club.
We continue on Metropocalypse. I'm Martin DeCaro. And I'm Martine Powers. And we're joined once again by historian Zachary Schrag, author of The Great Society Subway. He's the local authority about Metro's history, and he's going to help us drill down on a question that we get a lot. How did we get here today? That's right, Martine. We've been on a quest for satisfying answers. You know, there is no one smoking gun or one bad decision made at a particular point in time that left us in this sorry state. But we can go back to one year, 1986, March 25th to be exact. Ralph Stanley was testifying before Congress. He was the head of what was then the Urban Mass Transportation Administration, today the Federal Transit Administration, and he says Metro's on a really dangerous trajectory. Right. So at this point, the system has been open for 10 years, and it's been opening new stations and new rail lines, and the federal government has been footing the bill for constructing the system, and the cost is beginning to mushroom. 1970, Nixon administration gets a $2.9 billion estimate. We're talking about building out the entire 103-mile system. 1975, President Ford, $4.6 billion. President Carter, $7.5 billion. And by the time 1986 rolls around, the system is about to expand to the 103 miles. The tab is now exceeding $12 billion. So Ralph Stanley is testifying before Congress, and he continues to allude to a study that was performed by the federal city council. Bottom line, Metro's maintenance and operational costs are going to skyrocket, and unless you find money to pay for them by the year 2000, you're going to be in a dire situation. The point being, the federal government paid to build the system. Someone else is going to have to pay to operate and maintain it. So here's Professor Schrag explaining exactly what happened in 1986. The Federal City Council report, Transit in the Nation's Capital of 1986, was an important report. It was a clear warning that Metro had to plan for a future that involved a lot more maintenance programs. Up to that point, Metro was quite well maintained. The report says this. It said that Metro had some good years ahead, but that stations and rail cars and other equipment did not have infinite lifespans. They were going to need maintenance. They were going to need rehabilitation. Ultimately, things like rail cars would need replacement. And they warned that this would happen in the next 10 years, so uh, by the early 1990s, and that it was time for Metro to start putting away money for that rainy day. Unfortunately, Metro did not have extra money to put away for the rainy day. This was when a lot of the system had not been built. Um, The green line was uh, a hole in the ground for parts of it and not even broken ground for other parts. And so in some level, If there was a choice, the choice was to maintain and rehabilitate what had already been built while canceling big segments of the Green Line uh, versus pushing forward, trying to get the originally agreed to system done and then worry about maintenance. And even in retrospect, I don't know what the right choice was. Um, If you can imagine the anger and... uh, this devastation that would have erupted if the region had said, this is the line that was promised to the poorest communities in D.C. and Prince George's County. This was the line that was promised to the most predominantly minority communities in D.C. and Prince George's County. Uh, This is the line that is going to rebuild the neighborhoods most damaged by the 1968 riots. And we've decided that we're not going to pay for it. And instead, we're going to continue serving uh, wealthier, whiter suburbanites. Um, I don't know if you Which would have would, had... Is it the kind of decision that was made in a lot of other cities and a lot of other regions, you know, where, where 
at these points of things becoming too costly that minority communities and, and lower income communities get thrown under the bus? Yes and no. I mean, so one of the remarkable things about Metro is how universal it is, relatively speaking. So a big comparison point is MARTA in Atlanta, where it was the wealthier, whiter communities that opted out of the rail system. And so that MARTA primarily served uh, minority people who, in many cases, did not have access to cars, as opposed to luring suburbanites out of their private automobiles. So I, I think, you know, in some ways, Metro is surprising in the degree that it does lure people who could afford to drive onto transit. Um, and, you know, for all the horrible news we are seeing right now, it's amazing to, you know, hear how angry people in Fairfax County are that Metro is shutting down, whereas, you know, it could have been people in Fairfax County saying, well, I've got my car, I've got my I-66, and the people down there in D.C. without cars can go ahead and lump it. So um, in that sense, uh, the idea of planning a system that would serve everyone has worked out. And it's also working out so that now that there is pain, that pain is distributed in a way that is not typical for American cities. You know, the, the big story of American metropolitan areas uh, over the last half century, a lot of it has been these brutal divisions between city and suburb. We see this in school systems, for example. Metro uh, was designed to unite city and suburb. To a large degree, it has. And this decision in the 1980s to keep building contributed to that. So yes, we are suffering pain from that now. We would have suffered a lot of pain in the 1980s had the decision gone the other way. Um, even in hindsight, I can't say what the right decision would have been. Professor Zachary Schrag of George Mason University, author of The Great Society, Subway. So what happens after 1986? Let's talk to someone who knows. David Gunn, former Metro general manager from 1991 to 1994, a career transit industry executive. He used to run Amtrak, too. He joined us on the phone from his home where he's retired in Nova Scotia, where he's been watching Metro from a distance. And he says he agrees with the premise of the 1986 report that maintenance and operational costs were going to increase and Metro had to do something about it. Metro, when I was there... They had a very effective organization, operating organization, on the rail side and the bus side. The biggest problem they had that was coming down the pike was the fact that the board structure was was totally inappropriate for managing something like the Metro. How so? At that time, you had 12 board members, which is too many, and you had no permanent chair, which means there is no real head of Metro, most of the board members, particularly the new ultra-political types, they viewed the chair just as a convener of meetings, not as a leader. Do you think that there have been a lot of significant changes to how the how the board works that have improved now? I mean, do you think that the board is better off now they, compared to then? They played around with it. What they've done is, I think, probably made it worse. They've expanded the board, okay? Now you've got 16 people. And the board was meeting every week. Now, here you have 16 people, most of whom don't know the front from the back of a bus, 
tying up management for almost the entire week. And then on top of that, they picked people, and I'm not going to get into names, but they, they picked general managers whose primary skill was the ability to get along with them. So you clashed with your board. Was it over how much time and money was being put into maintaining the system, which was then about 15, no, 16 no, years old? No, no, we, no. When we were there, when I was there, we had a good state of repair capital budget, and the board was receptive to it. Mr. Gunn, the Green Line opened while you were general manager. Was there any tension between expanding the system and trying to maintain what was already built? My memory of that is that the goal was the 103-mile system. There was no tension between that and state of good repair. What happened was, over time, if you look at the funding, is there was a lot of money, but it all went to bus and handicap services after I left. The bus subsidy more than, well, doubled. It doubled. The board became totally political. And the thing that has an immediate impact on the voters is local bus service. And at the same time, you had managements who were complicit. They didn't stand up and say, over my dead body. They didn't put forward a maintenance program and say, this is what you have to fund. They didn't say, you can't pour all that money into bus and handicap services and starve rail. Well, speaking of management, um, can we ask, what do you think about how uh, General Manager Wiedefeld is doing so far? I mean, he's certainly attacking the problem with, I mean, he's got a lot of guts. He's, He's identified one of the key problems, which was created by the board, which was hours of service. And he has said that you got to give the maintenance guys enough time to do the maintenance. And, I mean, he's right on target. So you left in the uh, mid-1990s, early to mid-1990s, and you were brought back by Metro in 2010, a year after the Fort Cotton disaster, to produce a report. So in those 15 years, it appears, based on what you're saying, Metro went from pretty good state of of good repair, uh, spending enough money on maintenance, to the report you issued in 2010 showing all of the things that were decaying and needed to be replaced. We knew that the maintenance budget had to go up, and we had a good team on the rail side that put together the programs that you had to carry out. So in 2010, you came back and did this report for Metro, and you found that at the beginning of that decade, Metro was putting in one-third of the amount of rail that needed to be replaced, about half the number of ties that needed to be replaced, a quarter of the number of fasteners that needed to be yeah. replaced, and that the maintenance teams were constantly running out of parts. Now, fast yeah. forward to 2016, Safe Track, where they're going in and ripping out railroad ties that are 35, 40 years old. I think that the current general manager has, you know, he's laid out a plan to try to deal with these problems. It's going to be very tough. So if you could give the current general manager one piece of advice, what would it be? Keep on, just keep moving. (laughs) I mean, I think he's got a, I think what he's started to do, it's the correct thing. He has attacked the hours of service and the maintenance windows that you need to maintain that system. Former Metro General Manager David Gunn. Speaking of the current general manager, Paul Wiedefeld, he continues his organizational shakeup of WMATA, announcing the elimination of about 500 positions over the next several months. These are non-safety critical, non-essential vacant positions, as well as positions that are currently occupied. 
You'll hear from David Gunn again in future episodes of Metropocalypse, as well as former Metro officials and board members who disagree with him, as we continue to explore the key questions of where Metro went wrong in past decades. This has been Metropocalypse. Next week, we'll travel to the future. What exactly will the system look like 10 years from now? If you like what you've been hearing, please go to NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. It'll help other Metro writers find us. Plus, please join the Metropocalypse Facebook group. Metropocalypse is produced and edited by Brendan Sweeney, Joe Arminski, Chris Chester, John Ogolnik, and Zaid Shorbaji. Our engineer is Alex Druenskis. Andy McDaniel is WAMU's Director of Content. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. All the music from today's episode came from WAMU's Capital Soundtrack. You heard tunes from Kokai, Damu the Fudge Monk, Near Northeast, and Kaz and the Day Laborers. Be sure to check out the Capital Soundtrack project at bandwidth.wamu.org. Until next time, I'm Martin DeCaro. And I'm Martine Powers. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.